You are listening to a resource produced by Mark Inc. Ministries, and I'm Sharon Betters. And this conversation is with Elizabeth Groves Libby, as I have come to call her, has written a book called Grief Undone, A Journey with God and Cancer. And in this book, Libby shares the journey that her family experienced when her husband, Al, was diagnosed with a deadly cancer. Libby is also a, an instructor at Westminster Seminary, where she teaches Hebrew, and I can't even imagine what that class must be like. Uh, it makes my head hurt to think about it. She has four children. She has five grandchildren, another one on the way, and one of the places I really resonate with Libby is how intentional she is about connecting with her grandchildren, even though they are scattered about the country. So Libby, welcome. I'm so grateful to have you participate in this conversation Thank today. You. The subtitle is A Journey with God and Cancer. But Libby, before you talk about that journey, tell us a little bit about your family and what life was like before you knew that your husband had cancer. So we have four children, as you said. There are two, two years apart, and then a fair stretch of time, and then two younger ones. So at the time of Al's diagnosis, the kids were 12, 14, 21, and 23. So the older, the 21-year-old was finishing up her last year of college. The 23-year-old was out of college and was married. The younger two were at the time in seventh and ninth grade. Al was a professor at Westminster, where I now teach, had been teaching there for a quarter of a century. Um, and I had had the privilege and the blessing of being a stay-at-home mom for most of that time. I was also a student. I had started a master's program in 03. Al died in 07. So life was full. It was busy with kids and, and um so Libby, you had a lot of um, a lot going on in your life, pretty happy life, and then something happened. The earth just shifted beneath your feet. What happened? Well, Al was diagnosed with melanoma, and we knew from the outset that it was terminal, which in some ways made things simpler, not easier, but simpler, because we didn't have to ride the roller coaster so many cancer patients do, of saying, oh, we'll try this next thing, and maybe this will work, and, and the hope's builds and then it doesn't work and the hope crashes and they say well there's this other there's a clinical trial there's a drug there's a whatever and just that constant up and down between hope and uh, I don't want to say despair but realizing that that whatever you had put your hope in had failed for us it was simpler in the sense that we knew from the day we got the diagnosis that this cancer barring a miracle would end Al's life and the doctor said probably he had one to two years uh, it ended up being almost exactly one. Now, when the doctor gave you this devastating news, were you tempted to look for that magic cure? I mean, or did you and Al say, we're going to believe that what he's saying is true? The evidence was so compelling that you knew that there was no magic cure. I don't think we had any illusions about a magic cure. Um, <clears throat> the doctor was very straightforward about that, which we very, very much appreciated. Uh, there was a clinical trial that he qualified for, and so we went ahead and enrolled in that right away. And again, that had to be his choice. In the end, the side effects were hard enough that I think the rest of us looking on felt as if, you know, why are you putting yourself through this when we know... It, the, the, the clinical trial was never intended to cure. The doctor was also very upfront about that. It was just the hope of putting the brakes on the cancer for some indefinite period of time and then at some point, 
the brakes would fail and the cancer would progress. And so we knew it wasn't, it wasn't going to be a cure, and I think we wondered if the hard side effects were worth it, but that had to be Al's choice. And I think he felt, it wasn't, it wasn't a desperate clinging to, oh, I have to have X number of more months of life as much as just, hey, if I can stay around a little longer, that seems good to me. He was sad to leave us, even though he was at peace about it. I think for a man with a family, his concern is, uh, I'm yeah. their protector. Yeah, uh, how, protector, how, provider, strength, yes. everything. Yeah. How can mm-hmm. I do that if I'm not here? And so there's a lot that um, he has to go through and process. So so you had four children, two still in high school. How yeah, did you tell you? high, actually. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're young. They were how, young. How in the world did you tell them about their dad? Well, first on the way home from the doctor, we called the older two and talk to them. And that was, that was hard. It was hard to hear them break down. And then at dinner that night, we talked to the younger two. And we were very forthright with them. We had always taken the approach in parenting that you shouldn't make promises you can't keep. And so we had tried not to say things like, you know, oh, we'll always be here. Oh, we're not going to die. Because you don't know if you're going to die or not. And so we were very honest with them. We shared what the doctor had shared with us, and we talked about the clinical trial. And, you know, I think there's something in that moment of feeling helpless, feeling there's nothing you can do. You want to do something. And so I think the doctor, in giving us the hard news, gave us the sense of here's something you can do. It's not going to cure you, but it, it, it modifies the helplessness, I think, a little bit. And so we talked with them, too, about the clinical trial and what the what the principles were behind it and how it would attack the cancer and so on. And it turned out that, that our third child, the older of that younger pair, had been studying exactly that kind of thing in biology class not long before that, which I thought was very kind of the Lord. So So we talked with them. We told them what the doctor had said about probable length of life ahead. And then we also talked about the hope that we have not in a cure, but the hope that we have in Jesus, life after death, that even though death is really hard to go through, that it's sad, that it's not the way things were originally intended to be, that in Jesus we know it's actually the door to wonderful, wonderful life with him on the other side. And that, that was not news to them. That was something we had had been very much a part of our outlook on life, I guess, and our faith. But it was it was precious to us and to them, I think, in that moment to know that this is a reality too. Cancer is a reality. Life with Jesus on the other side of death is also a reality. And so I think we, we all four of us around the table really dwelt there. How long ago was this? This would have been January, February of 2006. 2006. So that's about 12 years ago. And for those, uh, obviously, listeners, you can't see our faces, but as Libby's talking, she's tearing up, and I'm trying not to. Sorry. Um, <laughs> and I know, I think that that's important for people to understand yeah. that you're telling yeah. a story, but there's, it's heartbreak along the way, but there's also a joy that is hard to describe. So I, I try to imagine myself telling our young children something like that and it just is overwhelming to yep. think it about. It was hard. It it's, was hard. It's overwhelming. And to one think thing about. we told them that night was that it's always okay to cry. Which we have stuck by. <laughs> really I think that is okay. I think I think you could do a disservice to yourself and others by always trying to keep things bottled up and stifled and under control. And you know what? It's not under control. 
That's right. And I, I think one of my favorite verses through our own grief journey was the one where the uh, Bible says that God gathers all our tears in a bottle. Right. He knows. He, he knows. understands. And he understands, not just sitting up there someplace looking down and understanding, but Jesus was here on this earth. As a human being, he looked out at this world through human eyes. He experienced grief. He experienced the loss of a friend. He, you know, he, he, he knows from the inside as well as the outside which has been precious to us too. You, you know, Libby, as in the ministry, we've had many opportunities to be a part of families' journeys through grief and crisis and fear and broken places. And I remember one time being in a waiting room with a family. They were waiting for a child who was going through very serious surgery. And the grandmother, who I know is a committed Christian, kept saying, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? It was, it seemed as I observed this, it was as though it was all about her. And her daughter, I felt, needed her to be something different at that point. Now, I at that point had never been in that kind of waiting room for a grandchild, so I can only imagine the devastation that she was experiencing. But is there a time when parents really need to? There's a dying to self that happens, and how do parents influence their children's response to those hard places? Let me start by saying I, don't, I certainly didn't do that perfectly. <laughs> so whatever grief or trial you're going through, it can be consuming. And so it, is, it takes a choice of will to, to push past your own experience of it, to think how somebody else is experiencing it. But when it comes to parents and children, I think there is a call to do that, even though it's really hard. And, you know, if your house, let's say your house was flooding, you wouldn't just get out and leave your kids behind to drown. You know, you would say, somehow I got to get these kids out of this house. I got to find a boat or whatever I'm going to do. But, but you, would, you would save your kids. And I think this journey through grief is hard on you and it's hard on them. And it's that same sort of call to say, Whatever it takes, I, I have to help these kids through this in whatever way I'm able to do that. You're not called to be their strength or their savior. It's, it's not as if you somehow have to magically fix it for them, which you can't anyway. But I think, I think to point them to trust in the one who can. And so I think, first of all, for parents to, to just strive as much as possible to, to trust God and to be honest with him, to, to say I'm struggling with this or that, but, but to be in a constant conversation with him and to, to be saying, Lord, help me to trust you in this. I'm not saying that that's easy or that you have to have that all together before you can help your kids. You know, like on the airline, put your own mask on first and then assist someone who's with you. It's, it's a both and at the same time kind of a thing. And to let your kids see you struggling with that and seeing that you are taking this to God again and again and again, and to encourage them to do the same thing and encourage them to be honest with him. I think a, a sort of an analogy of if you were in a war zone and suddenly just all of a sudden war is upon you and you need to get out, and the Marines have sent some guys in to get you out, you and your family. And so let's say there are six of you in the family and they have sent six Marines. Then what you want to tell your kids is, okay, listen, this is... Sergeant so-and-so, whatever his name is, okay, and he is going to take you safely out, and I want you to be right with him, right? I want, to stick, I want you to stick right with his side and do whatever he tells you, and I want you to trust him. He's going to get you out, and so each of the six of you has somebody like that that you're trusting, and that's kind of how you want to have your kids 
trust the Lord. Now, of course, there are two differences. Number one, one of those Marines might get killed and then your child is lost. So that's not going to happen. God is going to be there. He, he cannot be shot in the line of duty or whatever. Um, and, of course, you're all actually trusting the same Marine. It's the same God who is going to be with each of you. But I think that that helps me anyway in that picture to say, my job is not to tell the child to trust me because they're going to be in trouble if they're depending on me, but to encourage them at every point to trust trust their Marine, if you will, to trust the Lord who is going to walk with them and to be honest with him, to be in constant conversation with him and with you, but but I think just to point your kids constantly to the Lord and, you know, trust that that, that is probably going to grow their faith too. They're going to come out of this experience knowing God in a way they haven't before if they are walking through this step by step with him, looking to him to help them navigate it. So when you um, started this journey, did you think in your heart at some point, I'm getting ready to take the journey of a lifetime? Yes. <laughs> I think I think there was very much that sense from the beginning. As much as anything, I think of, wow, I have no idea what this is going to look like. I've never done this before. And, and everybody's journey is different. And I don't mean just how they experience it, but will the time be short? Will it be long? What will it look like medically? What will it look like for all of us emotionally? It's just absolutely a blank slate. We had no idea what to expect. And the, the one thing I knew, I was pretty sure it would be hard for all of us. <laughs> and I was absolutely sure that the Lord was going to be with us. And that's all I knew. That's all we had to go on. I think about um, when death uh, invades our home and we're thrown into that grief and I call it the land of grief where we don't know the language we don't know the customs everything is foreign to us and we need people along the way to help us navigate that land and that's one of the purposes I know that you have in sharing your own story is you're calling back to those coming behind you and I've, as we think about the children what advice would you give in addition to what you've already said, uh, to parents who are, their, their own hearts are broken and they're grief stricken and they feel like they barely have a moment to be able to breathe. How in the world do they take care of their children? Yeah, that's a hard one. Expect that this is probably going to be the hardest thing you will ever do. It's going to take a lot of time for all of you. Life is going to keep coming at you and at your kids. And in a sense, that's good. You wouldn't want life to suddenly just stop because you have a crisis. Life keeps coming. And so I think one thing we tried to do for our kids was help them engage with Al's cancer and the journey and what was happening. And we didn't try to hide any of that from them, but help them also keep living their lives. They were involved in school and extracurricular activities and friends and church and, and one thing and another. And to the extent that we were able, we tried to help them be able to keep doing those things. And sometimes it got to be just too much. And so there were times when they, you know, couldn't be involved in something or other. And and when possible, we left that decision to them. There was one of them decided to try out for the school play and the other decided not to because we just had no idea what the timeline would be. Would Al be around? Would that be right in the middle of when he died? Which it turned out that it was. But I think we tried to do it as a team and to help them see that if if there was something that had to be curtailed, something that just wasn't going to work because of the situation we were in, that their accepting that was a way to help Al to be a part of the team. And it, this was something that we were doing 
very much together, and there were ways that they could help do that. So it's kind of a kind of a crazy. It's almost like I've never had twins, but I would guess if you have twins, you get two babies in your arms, and you have to take care of both of them. And sometimes one is more needy, and sometimes the other is more needy. And so there was daily life and putting time and energy and thought and everything into that. And there was Al's cancer journey and putting time and energy and thought into that. And all of us, I think, were sort of constantly switching back and forth between the two and taking care of both. You know, you can't do everything. I think there were times when I tried and realized <laughs> there's no way. And I would crash and burn. And thankfully, other people would step in and pick up the pieces. And, and you describe uh, a moment like that in your book. Yes. Can, can you share that with us? It was probably a month after, maybe less than a month after Al's diagnosis. He was in the middle of the clinical trial with, with side effects that just had him literally unable to walk. He had to crawl back and forth from the couch to the bathroom. That's what he had been reduced to. And it was the weekend of the school play that they did both try out for and were in. And we had company coming from out of town to watch the play, so I had overnight guests. And the elderly woman across the street ended up in the hospital, and she, her, the state of her life was such that there were not very many people involved in it, and so she needed stuff run over to the hospital for her. And it was just... Yeah, <laughs> it was just perfect storm. Perfect storm of way too much. And and I was so overextended that when that weekend was over, I felt almost comatose. I just had to sit in a chair <laughs> and try to breathe. Oh, my goodness. And there were other times when just it was too many emotional things crashing in on the same weekend. That was the weekend we learned. Uh, trial had failed, and Al's... Um, cancer had spread to his brain, and two of the kids had crises going on in their lives, and our daughter was home for a wedding of a friend who's also the daughter of one of our friends, and Al ended up in the hospital. It just, it, there are times when things just all conspired to be way too much. And so you have to realize you have limits. We're only human and finite, and the Lord made us that way, and he's okay with that. And there are times you just have to say, I, I can't do I can't do it anymore. I probably can't even do this. I, we have to take stock here. So what did you do to kind of change, switch gears? Well, different things, different times. The, the first weekend I described, we got through the weekend, and then I just had to say, you know, I, Al had an idea of something he wanted to institute, and I just thought, I, I can't, I, you know, maybe later, but I just simply am not capable of doing that. And he, he was okay with that. The time of the weekend that of the wedding and the cancer spreading to the brain and Al being in the hospital and all that, I felt as if I was, I was in a, a flooded, like a river that was flooding, and I was pinned up against a great big rock, and stuff just kept washing downstream and smacking me. And there was nothing I could do about that. I couldn't stop the crises in the kids' lives. I couldn't stop the brain cancer from uh, cancer spreading to the brain. I, it, there was nothing I could do. But I had the sense that the Lord was the rock I was pinned up against. And I wasn't going to get washed away. And that was all I could do was just stay pinned up against the rock and be thankful for the rock. There was uh, literally there was <laughs> nothing more than that that I was capable of doing. And that was okay. I think that was, you know, that was what faith looked like in that moment. And it's clear from your book and from your conversations and from your life that your faith prepared you for this journey. And what a beautiful picture of what that looks like. Psalm 62, where David says, God, you alone are my rock, yes. my rest, my refuge, my rescue. And those moments when we come up against that rock, instead of looking at it as an obstacle, looking at it as freedom. safety and protection safety and too. protection yeah. yeah how important is it 
to take care of yourself in this kind of a crisis? And how did you, were you intentional about taking care of yourself so that you could take care of everybody else? Yes, I don't know that I always did a terribly good job of that. I think that is common to mothers, <laughs> to many, um, where it's just like there are so many needs around me and, it, and it's important to take care of everybody else. You just don't have time. But Al and I went to his high school reunion that year that he was dying, which was out in Aberdeen, South Dakota. We live in Philadelphia, so it was a big trip. And I was talking with one of his high school classmates whom I had met maybe once before ever, and he gave me some advice he had given to his, I think it was his sister-in-law who was in a similar situation, and he had said to her, look, if you get to the end and you have nothing left, that's okay, there's not a soul who's gonna blame you for that. But if you want to be strong through the whole thing, you have got to take care of yourself. You need to exercise, you need to eat right, you need to try to get sleep when you can. And I thought, you know, that is very good advice, and I wanted to finish strong. And so I started exercising, now keep in mind, <laughs> It was not much. I would maybe jog a mile in the morning, you know, which, which for me was a big deal. For most people, they would laugh at that. But, but I think that did help me be in some better shape so that when things got really grueling at the end, I did have more strength than I would have otherwise. So there's something, there's a lot to be said for that if you can find a way to fit it in. It's important. Yeah. Well, I, I think sometimes caregivers feel as though they're being selfish, that, you know, there's another need facing them. Right. Somebody else's need is always more important, which in a sense, I, I totally, totally get that, which I think was why it was helpful to hear it put that way from this classmate of Al, that it's not you have to take your care of yourself in the sense of it's fine to go be selfish. Uh, you know, he wasn't saying be selfish. He was saying you need to take care of yourself so that you will have the strength to keep being able to care, take care of the needs of others. And that was really helpful. Very, very helpful. Your faith, I mentioned, helped you through this journey. How were you able to help Al in his own faith journey? And how did he help you? as you walked this path of grief. Yeah. I think in our past, we each had been part of churches where just the reality of heaven was something that was valued. And so I think in our, in our early years, as, say, teenagers, we had very much a sense of, you know what? Heaven is going to be awesome. It's going to be so wonderful to be there with Jesus. And so I think that was a piece of our background, just knowing that whether we die young or old or in the middle, there is something fabulous on the other side. That was really helpful. And I think we, we had a, a journey through many different churches and denominations at, through our growing up years in college and moving and, and this and that, which was really valuable. And we learned so much from each group. And I would say the last number of years, one of the things we learned that we so appreciated was just how big God is. And that he's... He is in charge, like the whole universe is his kingdom and his domain. And there is absolutely nothing that gets away from him, nothing that's left to chance. Um, and so that was really comforting, I think, to both of us. And we were able to encourage each other with that, that it's not as if somehow he had lost the reins and things had gotten off the tracks and, and he was scrambling to try to figure out how to fix it. You know, this was all a part of the plan that he had. That was comforting, and I think, too, that he is such a tender, loving, heavenly father. And that combination of having that kind of power and authority and being 
for us the way a parent is for a child and knowing us so intimately. That combination really helped us. And so I think as we saw something in scripture, either one of us, or, or just were reflecting on something that was encouraging along those lines, we would share that with each other. It was really comforting to think that Jesus had already walked this path that Al was heading into. He knew what it was like to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and the valley of death itself and had walked that dark path and come out on the other side. And when it was Al's time, he would walk that with him. And, and he would take him by the hand and together they would walk through that valley and come out the other side. And that was, that was just so comforting for him and for us. Um, and then I think, I think I was very concerned for what life would be like for us afterwards because he was the only breadwinner. And so we're talking pretty massive upheaval to life. And so I kept assuring him that I knew the Lord would take good care of us. Exquisite care of us. And he absolutely has. And I think he needed to know that. But he kept assuring me the same thing. He said, look, you know, the Lord will provide for you. He will give you things in your life that have meaning. He will give you things. So he will use you in his kingdom. All of those things. So I think we kept reassuring each other of that, that we left behind would be fine. I have never thought about the way that when someone has to go through what you and Al walked through, I've never thought of it so specifically that Jesus knew he was heading toward his death. Yes. And he's the one that has promised he's never going to leave you. What, What a beautiful picture of comfort and hope. It's possible that uh, listeners have never heard of Al Groves, and yet he has influenced thousands of people through his writings, through his teaching. Tell us a little bit about what Al did before this diagnosis. He actually trained as an engineer back in college. He, He has an engineering degree. And then he pastored for a few years. Then he came to seminary, sort of did things backwards. Um... And ended up teaching. We thought we would be going back to New England, but he ended up teaching here in Philadelphia for years and years and years. He taught Old Testament, but he also ended up combining his engineering training with his biblical studies. And so he was part of a team that that was responsible for putting the Hebrew Bible into a form the computer could read. He was not the only one doing that, but there were a team of people doing that. And then the next stage was to go through and flag every word in the Hebrew Bible saying, okay, this is a noun, it's masculine plural, it has a suffix, it has an article, this verb is, you know, imperfect, third masculine plural, da 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 And that's the, the software, well, I don't know if I'm a terrible computer version, that's the data that underlies um, many of the Bible software programs today so that you can open up a program and say, oh, I would like to see how many words, how many times this verb occurs. Click, and there it is, which the the rabbis of old had to just hold in their heads. And Al was able to see, wait a minute, computers can do that. I wonder if we could harness the power of the computer to make those sorts of things available to people. So he was a bit of a pioneer in in that field. He was part of Bible collaboration projects around the world. He really was, above all, a people person. He just loved people, everybody. He, when he was in college, he knew all the janitors and their names and their stories, and he just absolutely loved people. So he, he welcomed any opportunity to 
get to know new people and find out who they were. And yeah, he was an amazing man. He really was. So when you think about the people who he's influenced, and I'm sure that you've heard from many of them uh, who wanted to say thank you. And how do you reconcile God taking such a man who, in our human perspective, had so much more to give, so many more people to encourage to trust Jesus? How do you put that together? Well, it's not easy. (laughs) Corrie ten Boom, who was a Dutch woman who, with her family, hid Jews during World War II and ended up in a concentration camp, used to do needlework, absolutely just beautiful needlework. And she has, I saw one of her tapestries. It was a great big thing. It was, it was a crown, a very elaborate crown with decorations around the outside and gems and jewels. And it was just spectacular. Um, but it hangs on the wall of her house in Holland now. She's, she's no longer living. But it's, it's hung in such a way that you can flip it over and see the backside of the tapestry, which is just knots and threads and tangles and looks like a mess. And she used to say that in this world, we can only see the underside of the tapestry, and it's only from above that God can see the beautiful picture he is making. And so I think there, there are a lot of times that life feels like that. And... Even from if you even when I look at things from a kingdom perspective, a kingdom of God, what God is up to in this world, sometimes things happen, and you say, "Lord, this is a person, and not just Al, but you know, here's a, here is a seminary student who came to Westminster from somewhere in Africa, studied and studied, learned all kinds of stuff, went back to his country to serve, was doing a wonderful job there, and he's killed in a bike accident. And you think, Lord, how can that possibly make sense? Why would you give him all of that training and experience and set him up to have this delightful, fruitful ministry and then take his life? It just There are things that are just so counterintuitive. You say, I don't get it, Lord. It doesn't make any sense from where I sit. Even, even when I'm looking at it with the eyes of what are you up to in your kingdom? And I just have to trust that he sees the top part of the tapestry and it somehow all fits together in the bigger picture. And and I just have to trust him. It's almost like a child trusting a parent and the parent knows more and knows why it's not actually okay for the child to do exercise. Whatever, you know, the situation, any situation where you just have to trust somebody and trust that they understand in a way that you don't. And I'm sure he does. And I know that he is good. I know that he is for his people. I know that I, I someday it may make sense to me when I'm there in his presence. And even if it doesn't, I know who he is. And I know that he is absolutely good and wonderful and loving and powerful and all of those things to the point of sending his own son to die for us. And so when it doesn't make sense, that's where I have to stop and just say, okay, Lord, I don't get this, but I trust that you do, and I, I can leave it there. There's a, a verse in Proverbs that's pretty well known, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, which really does indicate that you, you're not going to get it, <laughs> and it's okay. <laughs> lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. So he knows we're frail. He does. And that we're not going to get it. Yeah. But. And, and he alone can keep the entirety of human history and world events yeah. and personal events of 18 billion people all in sight at the same time. And he knows how they all fit together. 
and we don't. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. For sure. Well, it's been a while since Al's death, but as you have grieved, have you experienced any of the emotions that were told are typical of grieving, like anger and doubting and fear? And, and if you have, how did you handle them? How did they show up in your everyday life? And what did you do with them? Yeah, I, ha- I sh- certainly not in any kind of a predictable order. And I think the people who have who have said, "Oh, here are kind of the stages of grief," would not say this is how everybody experiences grief, and it has to be in this order and in this time and so on and so. I don't think anybody would say that. But there are plenty of emotions that come with grief. There's no doubt, and they do kind of tumble around one after another, and sometimes more than one at the same time. And I think, I think it's really, really important to be honest with the Lord, whether you're angry or doubtful or fearful or anxious or whatever it is, I think it's so important to to just be, I mean, he knows what you're feeling anyway. It's not as if you can keep it from him, but but to have that as a conversation. And I, I don't mean, I think some people would say, oh, you just vent everything at God. He's big enough. He can take it. And that's not what I mean. But I think we can come to him and say, Lord, I am so afraid of the future. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know where the money's going to come from. I don't know how I'm going to be a single parent, whatever it is, you know, or I'm angry or I'm doubtful. And to just tell him that and say, would you help me? You know, even if it means I am so angry at you right now that you did X, Y, Z, please help me. Help me to trust you. Help me to get on board with you. Help me to let go of that anger if that's what's needed. Whatever, whatever the emotion is, I think that is sometimes what faith looks like. And you see that all through the Psalms. The psalmist was so honest. Psalmists were so honest with God. And they would say, you know, look look at this. Look at those wicked guys. They're prospering and they've got kids and wealth. And look at me, I'm over here trying to follow you and I'm in trouble. And that doesn't seem fair to me. But it comes back to... I know who you are, Lord. I know you're God. Help me, please. I need help here. I'm having trouble dealing with this. And I think that's faith. I think the Lord is really pleased with that. I think that whether you're angry or fearful or whatever, if you do it with your face toward God rather than turning away and having your back to God, I think that's the fundamental thing is which way am I facing? Am I facing toward God and going to him for help as I'm honest with these things? Or am I saying, that's it, I'm done with you? And open hands yes. rather than clenched fists. Right, yes. And it, it may take time. I mean, to those, those who are listening, you're just so broken and you're listening to this conversation and your heart is saying, I wish I could be that way. You just start with one moment, one time of giving yourself that freedom to run to the Lord and not away from him. And that is faith. And that is strong faith. It, you may think that you are weak um, because you are, are sad or, or fearful or angry. And yet running to the Lord is a sign, in my personal opinion, of great faith yes, because you're I running agree. to him rather than away from him. So don't give up on the possibility that you could be experiencing the same kind of faith that Libby has been describing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the reason that works is because of who God is. He's, he is a God who welcomes those who come. And he doesn't ask us to be perfect. He doesn't ask us to have the faith of some giant out there, whoever that might be. He just wants us to come to him. David Pallison talks about how sometimes faith looks like you know marching steadfastly, forward and sometimes it's just 
walking. And sometimes it's just standing still, but still facing toward God, looking to him. And sometimes it's just being on your knees. And sometimes you are prostrate on the ground, but looking toward him. And that's faith. It doesn't have to be all mighty. It just needs to be a mustard seed that says, God, I need help. I love that picture. That's a beautiful picture. You've mentioned a couple of people who have encouraged you in your own faith walk, and I know that there are many more, but I think about the the perspective of worship. How has worshiped with others, uh, as well as private worship, you've kind of talked about private worship, how did worship with others encourage you in your own um, journey? And second, how do you, how did you then, and how do you now keep your relationship with Jesus fresh? Because you have so many responsibilities, and, and all of your energy at that time had to be going into caring for your family. So what kept your relationship to him fresh, or, or maybe not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, two different things. Worship, oh my goodness. Worship, they're, they're, I love worship. Not always there are days when I feel dry and distracted and I'm, my mind keeps wandering to what I have to do later or whatever. But, but oh my goodness, the, the, the most wonderful thing, I think, is just to be in God's presence. And someday we will actually be in God's presence. But, but to be in his presence in worship and to just lay everything else aside and remember who he is and just marvel at this incredible God who made everything and rules everything and is kind and loving and good and tender and patient and forgiving and mighty and holy and compassionate and all of those things. And to to be in his throne room, whether it's you know on your knees at home in your living room or especially with his people, it just... Uh, it's like the curtain pulls away and you see that's the king on the throne. And that is certainly what I need. It's probably what all of us need, I would bet. <laughs> and so so worship is is a time, I think, of just being in God's presence. And that's so encouraging. And there are times in worship when I, when I stop and I consciously think, you know, we are worshiping around the throne of this God. And the people who are already in heaven are too. And so I remember one time when Al and I were dating, he he had to drive across the country to help a friend do something. And at the time I remember thinking, okay, so there's the sun in the sky. Like I'm looking at that sun and Al's looking at that sun. It's from different angles because we're in different time zones. But there was something, I don't know, there was a closeness there from knowing that we were under the same sun, if you will. Um, And there's just a little bit of that in worship, recognizing we're all in this throng around God's throne. He's there in reality. I'm there by faith. But but sometimes I think, you know, if I could look around that, if I could see that throng, he would be in it someplace. And so there's kind of a closeness there too. Yeah, I love worship. I love especially songs that that just kind of pull back the clouds. And there you are in the throne room of the king. Oh, love it. Yeah, how to keep your relationship fresh. I mean, that is every Christian all the time, everywhere, every follower of Jesus there. You know, God has given us prayer and he's given us his word and he's given us fellowship with other Christians and sermons and and so many things to encourage our faith. And so in a sense, it's taking advantage of those, spending time reading and listening and expecting 
Okay, God, here I am with your word. Speak to me. What do you, what do you want to say to me through this passage I'm reading? And there are times when you just can't do that. And I think especially in the midst of grief, there are times that you just can't read or you can read and it doesn't, it just bounces off or you feel like I, I, I'm too weak to pray. And that's when I think the body of Christ needs to come around you and say, let me read some scripture to you. Or you might call the pastor and say, could you, could you just come and pray with me? Could you read some scripture? Could you help me remember who God is? And I think we, it's good to depend on each other in those times and to ask for help, to say, I need help. And most of all, to ask for help from God, to just say, Lord, I, I feel like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. I feel like I read your word and it's just nothing. Please help me. Holy Spirit, would you help me? And, you know, he does. Not, not that there's what they call the dark night of the soul. There are times when there might be an extended period where you feel like, I don't know, that God's listening at all. But he's there. He is listening. And, I, yeah, I think just to ask for help. And as we're able to take advantage of the things he's given us, Bible, prayer, fellowship, teaching. Well, I know that I'm, I have total confidence that someone is listening who really is not getting what you're saying who is in that dark night of the soul, who is really shattered by some kind of devastating news, um, whether it's the death of someone they love or a betrayal or uh, a terrible diagnosis, something where their faith, they thought they had strong faith, or maybe they've never had any faith. Speak to that person who is intrigued by what you've said but has no idea where to start to begin to experience that view of God, that perspective on eternity, the character of God. Yeah. You know, I think there are so many things we can experience in this world that warp our view of who God is. And I mean, I think of, of child abuse. You know what? If you grow up, especially if it's someone you should be able to trust who harms you. Um, th there are things that, that give us, I think, a wrong understanding of who God is. And boy, this is way too big a topic for, <laughs> for just a few minutes. But, but there are things that, that make you say, I don't, I, how can this possibly be true? Is there a God? What's he like? Is he like so-and-so who betrayed me or, or hurt me? Or even just when things go off the rails, you know, here's a diagnosis. I have six months to live, or someone I love is on the road to death, not too far in the future. Something they're just there's so many hard, hard things. Um, in some senses, I suppose it all comes back to the cross. I mean, God is. We know from the Bible, God's told the story of how He relates to His people, and we see His faithfulness and His patience and His forgiveness when we're all knuckleheads and we all go our own way and just mess things up so royally. Um, and He is so patient with that. But ultimately, He knew that that we were not going to be able to straighten this out on our own, and so He came and did it for us. And that's what Jesus was about, to come and, and turn back and fix the things that were broken way back in the Garden of Eden. It's, you know, death was not part of the original plan. It's as Adam and Eve disobeyed God that everything broke, everything in creation. There's disease, there's death, there are natural disasters, there are 
terrible heartbreak and brokenness in relationships. Everything just went And Jesus came back to step into the breach, if you will, and begin to repair that. And it's not all repaired yet, but his, his death and then his rising again, which broke the power of death, is what turns that around. And so he, he came to fix the biggest, deepest problems. And we all up here on the surface experience the results of those deep problems, but that's where he was fixing things at the root. So in the case of death and grief, for instance, we, we don't, death is not the end. Death will take every person on this planet unless Jesus comes back first. The death rate, last I checked, was still 100%. We will all die. Some of us may know, oh, I only have a few months till then. Some of us may think we have decades until then. But ultimately, we will all die. But for people who are united to Jesus by faith, that's not the end of the story. In fact, it's just the beginning of a much bigger and longer and better chapter. And in the, in the scope of eternity, we will look back on our, even if it's 100 years on this planet, as just a little blip before the start of real life, capital L, life. Um, and that's... And that was no picnic for Jesus. I mean, his, it's hard to face death, but the f- death he faced was like something none of us will ever have to go through. Physically being mocked, having his father turn away from him for that moment that he took our sins on himself. I mean, just we will never begin to grasp how awful it was for him. But he was willing to do that because he loved us and because he loved his father and to bring us back. And so I think that's, if we just look at, here are hard things that's hap- that have happened in my life, horrible as they may be, and then we say, okay, here, here's the data of my experience, what must God be like? I think we're going to not probably end up in the right spot. But I think if we look back to here's what God has done in history and here's why and here's the, the outflow of that to us now, even in this broken world, that begins to give us a different sense of who God is and what he's like and that he's a God we can trust and that when, as we belong to Jesus, we, we are his children as well and he is our father and, and a one, the, take the most wonderful father you've ever met on earth and put that on steroids, infinitely multiplied and that's what God is like. He is so for us. He is in our corner. He is radically on our side at every point. doesn't mean he's going to make everything rosy. There's still hard things. But, you know, I think, I think more than anything, what he wants is for us to know him and love him and be in that relationship with him and worship him. And that's, that, that may not sound appealing to somebody who hasn't tried it, <laughs> but really there is nothing more absolutely wonderful than that. And so even, even the hard things we go through are with that in mind. And so he doesn't say, yeah, I'm going to give you everything you want and everything's going to be comfortable and you never have any trouble. But he says, I will be with you and I will bring the hard things in your life into something beautiful and wonderful. And that, that is certainly true. I can look back and say, I know God better and more deeply and in new ways because of the grief that I walked through. And, and I would not trade that. Libby, I really appreciate the the word pictures that you paint and your intimacy with Christ is so evident 
in the way that you share your story and the way that you encourage others. I am so encouraged by what you have shared today. And for that uh, listener, if you are uh, just brokenhearted, and it's possible you are because you knew that this conversation was going to be about grief, I want to encourage you to do what Libby has suggested, and that is go to the Lord with open hands, facing him, just saying, help me, and start there, and then listen and watch to see where he leads you. It could be that you need to call a pastor of a a Bible-believing church, or maybe you have a friend who you know is a Christian, your neighbor, somebody in your family, that you could talk to and ask, how can you know Jesus better, uh, step by step? If you are uh, isolated and you feel as though you have no one, turn to the scriptures, turn to the book of John, start reading the book of John, and, and as you go, ask the Lord to show you his character. I remember at a really painful time in my own grief journey where I just felt like I didn't know who God was. And I was a Bible study teacher. And yet I I just didn't recognize his actions in my life. And I said that to him. And I felt him leading me to the book of John. And as though he was saying, if you want to know who I am, watch my son. Watch him walk those dusty roads of Galilee. Walk with him. Watch how he interacts with people. Watch what drives him. Watch his relationship to me. And that's what I want to encourage you to do. And do that praying for the Lord to open your eyes and your heart to the healing that he gives to us through that personal relationship to Jesus. You have been listening to a conversation with Libby Groves. I'm Sharon Betters, and this resource has been produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. And we would love to help you to know Jesus better. If what you've heard is resonating with you, but you still feel like you don't know where to turn, contact us uh, through our website, and we will do everything we can to encourage you in your own journey and to help you find that relationship with Jesus that will give you the comfort and the strength and the direction for the pathway that God has marked out for you. So that website is at markinc.org, M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org. Thank you for listening. Please contact us. We would love to offer you a way to know the help and hope that only Jesus gives. 